Welcome to Life on Less Meds, a podcast that reveals the truth about drug side effects and the best strategies to manage them. And now your host, Dr. Yosef Wittering. Hi, so it's my pleasure to be uh, joined by Jim Godstein here today. And um, I've known of Jim for a long time, and many of you may have known of him as well. He, uh, he was the lawyer who actually made available a lot of the uh, Zyprexa papers, which led to one of the biggest laws, uh, the biggest settlements in, 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 I guess, the history of uh, lawsuits against pharmaceutical companies. I think it was $3 billion or something like that. Um, so he had a really integral role with that. Other really interesting things about Jim is he's done a lot of work uh, helping with involuntary commitment and people getting uh, committed uh, on poor, gr- um, poor legal grounds. He was very busy doing that kind of work. And he also has his own uh, personal story about mania as well, um, which led to a lot of his interest in um, being active in this area. Jim's also done a lot of work with other, um, I, I guess I would say, leaders in psychiatric reform on how to improve mental health outcomes. And uh, we're going to be talking about all of those things today. So, Jim, thanks so much for making the time. It's great to have you on. Thank you. I'm pleased to be here, Joseph. Thanks for having me. You know, Jim, I think a really nice place to start, just so the audience has a sense of where you're coming from, is tell us t- yeah tell us how you got into all of this uh you know your experiences with uh, with the psychiatric system uh, i guess growing up so i was um you know just living my life uh, uh i'd been at graduated from law school was practicing law uh and i got into a situation where i uh took on too much and didn't sleep. And uh, I've subsequently learned that anybody will, you know, uh, go psychotic. I like the term go, you know, crazy, but go psychotic if if they uh, sleep deprived enough. And I'm not particularly tolerant of it. Anyway, so, um, I, I, anyway, I had gone over to my dad's house to try and get, get, get some sleep and I had just fallen asleep for a second and I woke up and heard the devil uh, coming down the hall and I was on the second floor and I looked out the window and there was a a lawn down there and a uh, sidewalk and I knew how to do a parachute landing fall so I uh, I figured if I you know missed the sidewalk I'd be fine I jumped jumped out of the window and uh, did a, a perfectly good parachute landing fall on the uh, missed the sidewalk, ran across the street into this uh, park. What, what is a parachute landing fall? How do you how do you do that type of fall? Well, I was a skydiver, and okay. so that's uh, it's just where you hit your feet and you you know you kind of roll. You, you've seen it, okay. you? although these okay. days you, they've got this was back when we used. Uh, uh, surplus, you know, World War Two <laughs> shoots was in the mid seventies. But anyway, so um, uh, so it's just where you hit hit and then you kind of roll it to take take the shock so that you mm-hmm. don't uh, don't injure yourself. Okay. And uh, so I was looking over my shoulder for the devil, and so I was like spinning around. Anyway, they came with a in the paddy wagon and put me in a straitjacket and hauled me off to the hospital and 
uh, shot me up with something to put me to sleep. And uh, when I woke up, there's this male nurse or something uh, with a you know clipboard, and he, he asked me, "What day is it?" And I I asked him, "How long have I been asleep?" So he puts down, you know, not oriented to time, and that and that was kind of how things went. And um, I was told that you know I would you know that I was mentally ill. I would never get better. I have to take these drugs for the rest of my life. And those that believed I was a lawyer said I would never do that again. And uh, when I told them I graduated from Harvard Law School, that confirmed I was delusional. Oh my God. And, <laughs> you know, of course it's, you know, ascertainable. Anyway, so, but, um, and I've run into that before where people will say something that seems a little bit, you know, maybe a little bit grandiose and um, they could check it out, but they don't. Anyway, so um, that really caused me to, uh, you know, was a big redirection of my life. And so I became an advocate of uh, people diagnosed with serious mental ill and caught up in the system. Let me ask you this. Did you, did you believe any of that, at least at the start, you know, when you went in there and I guess the psychosis uh, abated? Was it a journey for you to realize that, hey, actually, I, I don't want to take these meds for the rest of my life and there, there's probably another way that is going to work for me? Like, how did you, what was that like? Uh, well, first off, it was very depressing to get that message. And so, I mean, you could say, well, there's, you know, he's manic and so that was a high part and then depression, the low part of, you know, manic depression or bipolar disorder. Um, but actually that message itself was really depressing. Uh, but I, I, was re I was extremely lucky, which is how I characterize my life generally. And um, I, I, after a couple of psychiatrists, uh, I got this one, Robert Alberts, who actually had been a Japanese prisoner of war in World War II in Indonesia. He was just a fabulous guy. And he said, look at you got yourself in a situation where you didn't sleep. Anybody will you know, become psychotic if they don't sleep and you just need to learn how to deal with it. And what I, um, so I have various, you know, uh, I do various things to kind of keep myself from getting there. And um, one is that I, uh, you know, I'm a lawyer and you have briefs that need to file and deadlines. And mm -hmm. I always try and, and what happens is I'm, I've got the deadline and I'm thinking about it and, uh, and I can't go to sleep. And so the way that I deal with that is I try and file it the day before it's due mm -hmm. to keep forgetting. And that's pretty unusual for a lawyer because you can always make things better by you know doing another draft. But I, I get it to where I think it's good enough and I like to think my good enough is pretty good and get it filed. But then, um, so there's a progression that, you know, I, I recognize that I have a progression. And the first one is I'll be sharp and witty, which I'm not right now, but anyway. So, um, 
and I know no one else noticed that notices that and then I'll get to a point where I'll have thought blocking which is you know where you kind of stop talking you know in the middle it's not quite uh, having trouble finding words uh, and so that's you know kind of a sign and then I'll get to the point where I think people are looking at me funny mm -hmm. and that's not good and so what I do about that is I first off I tell myself people are probably not looking at me funny and then I'll go but if they are it's probably because I'm doing something weird and then I try and then I you know kind of I think of myself as like looking down at myself to try and observe myself to you know make sure I'm not doing anything you know too weird um, and if I you know at that point I would take a benzo I liked uh, Halcyon which is you know much maligned because yeah. You know, in the UK, especially people with no those like sleepwalking murders and things like that, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. But I and uh, but I was on a pretty low dose, but it was the most delicious sleep. And um, but the, another place I was lucky is that um, I I was a pilot, which, by the way, you know, the hospital could care less about. I mean, I could mm -hmm. tell you the whole thing about them wanting to put me on lithium. And, um, but the F, I, you know, I lost my medical certificate and then Albert, Dr. Albert's really helped me get it back. But they said I couldn't fly for two days after taking it. So that was before I knew how, you know, how addictive the benzos were. And it, that really, and I, I really liked flying. And so, uh, that really, I think, helped me from taking it very much. And I'd go go a year without taking it. Um, mm -hmm. yeah, I haven't taken it since I moved to Hawaii four years ago. So, let, well, let me ask you this because, you know, clearly not everyone, when they become sleep deprived, goes into mania or psychosis, right? And this seems like it was something that you learned about yourself, like having after you learned that about yourself and I guess you learned how to manage it with, you know, sedatives at various points, I guess, recognizing when things were starting to slip. Um, do you, I mean, do you consider yourself to have bipolar disorder? Like how, how do you make sense of the, the fact that that, that that happens to you? What, what do you think of it? Do you give it a label? Like, how do you understand it? Well, um, I don't find the you know the diagnosis that that helpful really. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I you know do I qualify for that diagnosis? I you know back back when it happened to me, I was told you know about a maybe a third of the people just have it once, uh, you know, get it mania once and another third get it twice and uh, then another third get it periodically. So maybe I actually qualify for that diagnosis. But um, it's like to what end is that diagnosis uh, useful for? I mean, to me, you know, I know I I need to keep from getting in that state. And one of the things that I've, I've kind of noticed 
it, let me back up a bit. So before it happened to me, I had no idea anything like that could happen, right? Mm -hmm. That my mind would become unreliable. My thinking would just become screwed up like that. And um, so that was a complete shock. And then, but once it happened to me, it was like, okay, well, you know, I'll take these, you know, I learned how to take these steps. But I find a, found a lot of people really have a problem recognizing when they're getting into into that state. And so, um, and take take steps. And I, I don't know about that. I, um, you know, there's this RAP program, the Wellness Recovery Action Plan, which is designed, you know, to help people, you know, for people to uh, figure out what, you know, what helps, what their triggers are, and having a kind of an emergency plan that I think is very useful. Mm -hmm. I'm going to segue now. Um, thanks for thanks for filling us in on that um, and actually talk about um, your work with David Cohen and Peter Gerche and uh, on on um, on improving mental health outcomes. You know, you recently published uh, a piece on that. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. You know, where did the idea to do something like this come from, and um, um, what you identified as the main areas that we should be focusing on to improve? So there was in, was it, yeah, 2022. There was legislation passed in Alaska, and for, I'm just. Um, make a long story short and one of the things that came out of it was that the uh, legislature required a report on a number of things like patient trauma grievance the grievance process which faith myers one of the other authors had been lobbying for years they were in a rush to enact um enabling legislation for what's called this crisis now approach uh, for psychiatric emergencies, and um, and so Faith had been lobbying for this stuff for years, um, you know, a decade, and they said, oh, we don't have time for this, but we'll do a report, and I suggested that um, they add that the report make recommendations regarding improving patient outcomes, and just those three words. And so then um, the same authors and a couple more other people did some input into that report, into that report. Um, but, and it had a lot of Alaska stuff in it and, and you know, like specific recommendations for changing, uh, for amending statutes and, and those sorts of things. And, um, but also, you know, some more universally um, uh, applicable information and so I thought you know let's do one that you know people around the country and really around the world can use for advocacy and I think the thing about it is you know for people in my world you know who are critical of psychiatry I don't think really any single part of it is news but it's put together in a way specifically to be presented to policymakers and potential funders uh, to, you know, take another approach. So it starts out basically with noting that our current system 
has a uh, basically a five percent recovery rate for you know for people who have put on the neuroleptics, uh, and uh, and um, and we and we see through open dialogue and soteria that we could really have an eighty percent recovery rate if we you know tried to avoid putting people on the neuroleptics in the first place. And that people who are on neuroleptics for a while and get off, they have a 40% chance of recovery, which is eight times better than five, but half of 80. So that's, that's kind of the setting. Plus that people in the public mental health system diagnosed with serious mental illness have a 20, 20, 20 year or so uh, shorter lifespan um, that's clearly attributable to the psych drugs. So that's, um, that's one of the settings. Um, and then so that raises the question of why, why are we doing this? And so then we have a- you, wh wh why, why is that happening from your perspective? High level. Yeah. So there's two, two reasons. One is that society wants troubling people, troublesome people out of the way. And, and they have, you know, uh, designated psychiatry as a mechanism to get those people out of the way. Um, and of course, they basically say it's in, the, you know, people's best interest. Um, but the, and the other, but the other reason is that the clinical drug literature, the clinical trial drug literature, is basically fraudulent. And so we have a, a section on that, and um, uh, and you know my book, the Zyprexa papers, goes into you know one drug and some of the the you know fraudulent um, mechanism that they used to say that Zyprexa was um, safe and effective. So that's, well, that's one. Um, mm -hmm. And, and, the, and the other, I, I, and basically that involuntary psychiatric interventions. I'm gonna, do I'm gonna, not I'm gonna work. jump in here before we move on because I think it's a really interesting point. Because I was always trained that to prevent recurrences of psychosis, keeping people on maintenance antipsychotic therapy really was the gold standard, and that's the expectation. And, um, and that if you're not doing that, you're harming them because you're not preventing further episodes of psychosis coming through. So what's, what's that all about? Um, because, I mean, everyone, I think it's clear to most people, short-term use of antipsychotic medications, I mean, they can blunt psychosis. They can calm people down. They can put them to sleep. I think that's pretty clear in emergency situations that there could be some use for that, especially if you can't really isolate or quarantine these people when that's going on. But the maintenance side of it, you know, the, the ongoing treatment, that's such a, a fixed idea in mainstream psychiatry. So why do people think that that is the way to go about helping people who have psychotic illness? Well, I mean, that's basically the story that's sold. There's a huge amount of research that shows that's not true. Um, and uh, I 
think Favas, you know, wrote about it in the mid-90s or something. But a- anyway, um, so what happens is that the neuroleptics block 70 to 90 percent of the dopamine transmission in the brain, in the frontal lobe, the basal ganglia, and the limbic system. And I used to think of them as, as a chemical straitjacket, but actually they're literally a, a chemical lobotomy. But what the brain does in response to that blockage is for a few weeks, it pumps out more dopamine to compensate. And then it gives up and grows more dopamine receptors. And so while they've never shown any kind of brain abnormality in people diagnosed, say, with schizophrenia, before the drugs were introduced, one, the, the, you know, there are all kinds of brain abnormalities afterwards. Uh, this increased dopamine receptors is one, brain shrinkage is another. Um, and uh, so then you've got all these extra dopamine receptors, um, you know, to compensate for the blockage. And then if someone goes off the drugs, then, oh, all of a sudden they do have kind of a surge of dopamine and that causes a relapse. And so that's when basically psychiatrists say, see, you know, you really need these drugs. So, um, well, with it, that being said, so, um, I mean, that makes sense to me, you know, that, that, yeah, potentially that, you know, you're, you're mistaking, I guess, a withdrawal you know, uh, withdrawal related psychosis for psychosis coming from the condition. But I was wondering, are you, are you familiar that with, um, the, um, I guess the first paper from the radar study that came out recently from Joanna Moncrief and how they, um, it did look like, um, even doing a gradual slow reduction, at least at the two year mark, you know, uh, off, showed no difference in in relapse i was wondering if you could kind of comment on I that i thought that i thought that they were yeah. looking at social functioning i don't think that, but maybe relapse was in there too and that was interesting because that's um a little bit different than the harrow and job results but what they said what they found was that it was really later years that you saw the dramatic improvement. So I understand they're going to do follow-ups at four and it's like seven and a half years or something like that. So I'll be interested um, to to see what happens with that. Yes, same here. I'm, I, because that would be really something if they replicated those results. Um, and so... Do you believe this translates also to uh, bipolar as well? You know, we're talking about schizophrenia, but also um, because um, that that uh, maintenance treatment on mood stabilizing medications may also be detrimental for the bipolar illnesses. Long term, yeah, I think almost certainly. I mean, you know, I said before that when I had my episode it was like a third would have one episode another third would have two and and you know then another third would have periodic um but now with the um being put on the drugs you're seeing 
people just crunch, you know, going up and down, up and down, up and down, fairly rapid cycling. And you never saw that before, as I, basically, as I understand. I mean, Peter Bregan, I think it was Dr. Bregan, told me once that he had never really seen anybody that could be diagnosed with bipolar disorder for, you know, many years. And then all of a sudden, there are all these people. Um, I think part of it is kind of diagnostic fashion. Um, you know, it's not altogether, you know, the, the diagnostic um, categories are, you know, maybe not all that uh, clear and concrete. I think, I, I think talking about Peter Bregan is interesting because... Um... I mean, he's been at this for a long time. I think he's probably in his 80s now. And so, I mean, he was a practicing psychiatrist before psychiatry became big business. And I think that's probably hard for a lot of people to maybe even conceptualize a time when, you know, you weren't seeing antidepressant ads on TV and antipsychotic ads on TV. And it was, you know, this multi-billion dollar industry. But before that, it was kind of small potatoes and not really worth the investment. And it's just, um, it, was, it was in a time where I think there wasn't any of the disease mongering that's happening now where you have constant promotion of psychiatric conditions, um, which really leads to people, I guess, identifying with a lot of them as well. So that's one problem with it. And, and doctors think they see it more often and then, Along with that is, um, you know, we've kind of had bipolar disorder turn from something that I think used to be very classical, you know, these, these periods of grandiose mania that may go on for a couple of weeks, which would then burn out and crash into a depression. And that's how it was described for a very long time. But nowadays, everything can be bipolar disorder, um, at least the way I've seen it in clinical practice. If you're just irritable for long periods of time, or you're depressed for long periods of time, that, that's what counts as bipolar disorder these days. It's completely shifted. Um, and, and yeah, so I, I always think that's interesting. And I also, another thing that's interesting is most trainees these days, you know, growing, entering psychiatry, I would say probably from the early 90s onwards, um, would be very confused because now you're going to be looking at a lot of different things that could be bipolar disorder when in the past it was this very fixed kind of idea. And I think that's completely changed. And most people may never see a case of bipolar disorder that hasn't been exposed to several rounds of medications, which just really kind of confuses, uh, can be confusing for getting the diagnosis right for that. Well, I think there's, uh, I mean, I have, I can't remember exactly offhand, but I think this is about right, which is, you know, a pretty high percentage of people put on the, the SSRIs, you know, antidepressants become manic. Oh, um, yeah. Like in the 20% range. And the same with, you know, children you put on the stimulants for, you know, so-called ADHD. And so, you know, that's a pathway. And so then instead of saying, oh, let's look at what these drugs are doing and try and let's see what happens without them, they say, oh, you've got bipolar disorder and then start pres prescribing the, the, the 
you know, heavy duty drugs. And mm-hmm. and I want to go back to one thing you said, which is sure. about using the neuroleptics, you know, short term to get, you know, to help someone get someone to sleep. And I think, you know, probably a benzo for short term is better for that than a uh, neuroleptic. And I mean, I know Seroquel is just used for uh, insomnia a lot. And I, it's I crazy. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah, it caused tardive dyskinesia. It's insane. You've covered, okay, so, so it sounds like, you know, that one of the main things you talk about is the the harmfulness of uh, long-term maintenance therapy with neuroleptics. And I think I cut you off when you were about to talk about involuntary treatment. So I'll let you pick up there. Right. So, I mean, that's yeah. a, kind of the other main, before we, that's another main thing is that, tr- you know, it, basically, if it's not voluntary, it's not treatment. Mm-hmm. You know, and the idea that someone doesn't know how the drugs make them feel, and when they tell them that it's harming them, that you know, that's proof that they're they're mentally ill. I mean, it's just outrageous. And so, and also that uh, I call it psychiatric incarceration for involuntary commitment. Um, is massively associated with suicide. So the idea that locking someone up to prevent them from, you know, killing themselves is, you know, literally insane. So that's, you know, so the basic theme is nothing should be involuntary. And then we point out that actually that's what international law provides, that the United Nations Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities actually prohibits any uh, involuntary psychiatric interventions. And I thought it was a miracle that they got that passed. I didn't think they, they would achieve that. Um, but that's what the CRPD says. And, um, you know, governments kind of didn't really believe that's what it said, and so there have been a couple of clarifications that, yeah, that's what that's what it says, but there are no countries that actually follow it. With although maybe Mexico is is implementing something. So well, and, the, and the U.S. has Obama signed it, but it hasn't been ratified by the Senate. Well, let, let me. Um... Let me pressure test this just to make sure that I'm understanding this correctly. Um, are you saying that we shouldn't ever be involuntarily committing people to psychiatric hospitals, even if they are having, uh, even if they are in dangerous states, whether it's mania or acutely suicidal? Yes. So one of the things about, you know. Uh, um, we we talk about a program called Soteria House, mm-hmm. and and the reason I bring this up now is their mantra is to be with people rather than to do to them. So if you're with someone, you know they can't commit suicide. Um, so um, and Lauren Moser, uh, who is you know he's you know, a, a hero to psych survivors, you know, who maybe, mm-hmm. you know, some people don't, a lot of people don't know him now, but, um, and he was the chief of schizophrenia research at the National Institute of Mental Health and did this Soteria House study, which basically showed that uh, about 80% of people could get through if he really tried to avoid the neuroleptics. 
um, he testified in one of my cases that he had never had to co uh, commit anybody because he always made it a point to establish a relationship where they could agree on a course of action. He said he would do whatever it took, you know, if someone was about to degree his harm, but he'd never had to do it because he'd been able to avoid it. And that's, I think, demonstrates kind of the fundamental problem, which is people aren't given, you know, no time is spent on people to really work with them and no, find out yeah. what they want. You know, I mean, it's it's kind of, it's like, I think of being um, psychiatrically hospitalized as kind of Alice in Wonderland, you know, the Disney movie. I mean, sure. it's just really like that. I mean, so if you, um, if, if they lie to you and say, we're going to let you out on Tuesday and Tuesday comes and goes and they don't let you out and then you get angry about that, well, then you're labile, right? And, yeah. Know, and that, so that, everything is a symptom. And so then if you decide that, well, I'm just not going to react. Okay, well, then you have a flat affect. And, um, you know, and if you kind of chuckle to yourself because of the absurdity of the whole situation, then you're responding to internal stimuli. And so everything that you do in the hospital is charted as a symptom. Hmm. You know, I think you touched on something interesting, and, and that can be that... Um, we don't invest in spending time with people who are in acute crises. You know, we come and we pick them up in the paddy wagon, you know, just like what happened with you. They get processed in a busy emergency room and essentially they just get sent to the hospital. Um, and I guess given the practicality of the situation, you know, because I think about involuntary commitments, um, I guess that I would have been a part of. And, and I think things like, you know, if someone has a suicide attempt or something like that, um, I definitely remember doing involuntary commitments in those situations. And, and it's not because maybe you want them to get placed on medications or anything like that, but it could be more along the lines of you put them somewhere safe while you call their family and you figure out why this happened and you know and you put together a safe disposition maybe a lot of that could have been done without the hold but if the people are still suicidal when you talk to them is that not uh maybe the more compassionate thing to to give someone a couple days to cool off while you put together a plan with their family except that the, the evidence doesn't bear that out that locking people up is so traumatic that. Mm. I mean, I think in the, there was a study that showed in the first week after discharge, men were uh, like 138 times more likely to commit suicide than the general oh public, and women 240-something times. And so, but, but that, uh, that really brings up one of these programs that, that we really recommend, which are peer respites. Okay. And, and so that's, you know, a basically a home-like setting. It's staffed by peers, people with lived experience of having gone through this stuff. Um, and uh, so people can go there and be in a safe place. They're not forced to do anything. 
um, and just chill out. And there are people that they can talk to. They're usually, you can stay, you know, seven to ten days. There's a, a video that I pulled from the Pure Respite Soteria Summit of a couple years ago called How Athea House Helped Me, and it's about five minutes long. And this person describes how it really helped. It's a, I think she she's just fabulous. I don't know if you know her. Uh, Maddie Hedge. I, I, anyway, I should know her name. Okay. Anyway, she's fabulous. Yeah. What And what do you think about, uh, you know, I think, what do you think about like um, like man manic episodes? You know, when I think about someone who's in a a full blown mania, you know how I guess how much damage you can do when you have disinhibition and you've lost touch with reality. I mean, you might be out there on social media just ruining your reputation or blowing your money or you know saying things to your work colleagues. Uh, that you shouldn't have been saying. Yeah. I mean, do you do you see a place for involuntary commitment there, at least for damage control, so they don't completely mess their mess their life up while they're in that acute uh, phase of the mania where they where they don't have insight. Well, I think. I mean, basically, because involuntary commitment is you know so so harmful I'd say no that you got you do something else and um, you know I know I mean it's you know people go you know really yeah. do cause damage you know to their lives that way but I you know but locking people up you know really causes more damage so and do you say that because it, it because you've lost so much faith in the way the system currently works and you've heard so many horror stories about what's happened in that situation, it seems like the the alternative would be, I guess, less harmful. Yes, and I'm not really saying yeah. do nothing. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, none of this is about doing nothing. I mean, um, so again, I think it's, it's a matter of... Uh, you know, taking the time to, you know, to work with some someone and, you know, tell them your concerns and then ask them, you know, you know, do, you know, is there something they want, you know, gee, have you, have you slept, you know, yep. you know, I mean, I, I, there was some expert I was at this conference and he said, a hundred percent of the time psychosis is accompanied by sleep deprivation. Well, I don't know about 100%, but I know it's a really high percentage. And so just working on that, I mean, that's what, you know, when I would take uh, a benzo, I would take it just for one night and just break that cycle. Um, and uh, so, you know, there are other things to do than lock than involuntarily commit someone just because it's you know it ends up i mean the current system it's not i mean if you had a system you say well we're just gonna lock you up for a few days and you know let you chill out and then let you out and but that's not even what happens i mean what happens is the system insists that people be put on these drugs and stay on them 
In fact, in some places, you can't even justify to their insurance companies keeping them there unless they're on medications. It's a, it's essentially like a must, which is kind of scary if you think about it not even being an option, really, for someone to just go there in an unmedicated setting and just let the mania burn out. Right, another, another benefit of the peer respites. Right. Yeah. Okay. What other prongs are there, uh, I guess, in the report? So you talk about maintenance therapy and anti antipsychotics and I guess these other things. Was there anything else in there, a major feature? Well, then that's about, that's kind of half of it is, you know, what's wrong with the system. And then the other half of it is what we should be doing instead. Perfect. I, talk huh? about that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I talked about a couple of them, Soteria House, peer respites. Then there's the open dialogue approach that came out of uh, Finland, uh, where they actually eliminated schizophrenia and they're part of Finland because a proper diagnosis of schizophrenia requires symptoms for six months and they got people through it without it, uh, through it, be, you know, before the six months. And they take the approach that the problem isn't in the person, but you might call it the, the spaces between the people. And what they do is they bring everybody in, uh, you know, that's important in the person's life. They bring them together and talk about things and figure out what to do. And, they, and that's uh, a fabulous, um, they, they've, had, they've had pretty fabulous results. And that's another place where they get, they basically got an 80% recovery rate. And they did it by, I mean, the idea is to avoid the neuroleptics if possible. And they basically had 79% of people who didn't use it, didn't use neuroleptics. And then they had 80% of people who were working or on unemployment, but basically not symptomatic after five years. Um, now maybe there's not a hundred percent overlap on that, but pretty, pretty high. So I, I think it's, what's really clear it's is that we should be trying to get the people through what they're going through without putting them on the neuroleptics if we can there may be you know a certain number of people that you can't and i know people who find find them helpful and i think they should you know they should have access to them, not children um mm -hmm. But they should have access, and I think they should be told the truth about them. But even if they're not told the truth about them, if they want them, that's fine. I mean, I don't know if you know of Ellen Sachs, a law professor in uh, uh, USC. I, re I recognize wrote, I recognize the name, but... Yeah, she wrote yeah. this book called The Center Cannot Hold. Yes. And yeah. um, I have a completely different interpretation of her life than, than she does. But... You know, she takes them, and she's, you know, I mean, she's very accomplished. She's, you know, you know, a tenured law professor, which is when she came out, by the way, when she got tenure. And um, uh, and you read her story, and you, she tried all kinds of other things, and she found that neuroleptics worked and for her. And fine, I have no problem with that. 
But the idea of forcing these drugs that have such terrible overall outcomes, have such terrible health effects, forcing them on people on the idea with, that they're, you know, in their best interest and they're crazy because they don't want to take them. I mean, that's, uh, I think, outrageous. There's different levels to this. I'm sure you're aware of it as well, where it's not just, I guess, involuntary med commitments, you know, where, you know, a group of people come out to your home and they say, all right, now it's time to give you your, your monthly injectable. And if you don't comply, we're going to drag you to inpatient psych, you know, because that's, that's one form of forced treatment, which I think is probably the most um, frightening version. But there's also a tremendous amount of peer pressure. Anytime someone falls, anytime someone becomes bothersome who has one of these conditions, they say, oh, are you taking your medications? Oh, this happened because you didn't take your meds. And I feel like the whole family turns on these people. And so you, everything is looked at through this lens of you've slipped up because you didn't take your meds and everything is looked at that way. You know, when you go to one doctor, that's essentially what most of them just focus on. It's like, oh, this has happened because we don't have the dose right or we don't have the medication right. And I think a lot of these people, they would really struggle to ever even find a doctor who would treat them without medications. And, I, I, and so I feel like, yes, people get forced onto the medication sometimes, you know, by that first way I said, but a lot of times it's just by an immense amount of peer pressure and pressure from doctors and their families. Yes, and, and lots of times housing is conditioned on taking your, your meds or, or, some, you know, or something else. And, um, yeah, there's a lot of ways that people are forced, forced to take them. I mean, in, in divorce court, you know, mothers wow. are told, you know, they have to take the meds or they're going to lose their children. And, That's uh, crazy. Stuff like that. I yeah. mean, parents are told that they don't put their children on stimulants that they'll be taken away from them and they are so um, i've seen that yeah yeah it's um if you don't put your child on a medication we're going to interpret that as neglect um not following the doctor's orders yeah um and so okay open dialogue it's been a success why has it just stayed in one region of Norway? Why hasn't it been adopted by the country if it's so successful? Well, it, it actually has been spreading quite a bit. There's a lot, they're doing a lot of trainings around the world. There's some places in the U.S. that are doing it. I think they're maybe even within the report, but maybe 30 countries. But I may be confusing that, you know, the, another one of the programs is the Hearing Voices Network. Um, the difference because I because I do I am aware of the hearing voices network so it, it's what it sounds it's kind of it's a support group they say is, you, people get together and talk and and you know their mantra is not what's wrong with you it's what happened to you and um, and they basically talk about how you know how they keep the voices from causing so much trouble for you. I mean, it turns out, I mean, this came out of the Hearing Voices Network. I think it was, ended up being biggest in the UK, but it really came out of the Netherlands. 
and they did a, a study, and they found a pretty high percentage of people act, actually hear voices in the 10% range. Um, but it's only when the voices really cause problems for people that, you know, that they end up, you know, getting psychiatric problems. So people talk about different approaches for dealing with them, um, you know, like, are, you know, arguing with the voices, making appointments with the voices. Um, and, you know, sometimes, <clears throat> excuse me, they, <clears throat> excuse me, um, you know, sometimes the voices may recede and other times they don't, you know, really go away, but people learn how to, to cope with them so that they're not creating so much so many so much of a problem for them um and people find that valuable and it's a very inexpensive thing i mean basically maybe rent you know rent a space for meetings and these days of course mm -hmm. i assume they're being done on on zoom and mm -hmm. maybe pay a little bit for a facilitator um so that's another one of of the uh approaches that we talk about um Okay. So, uh, yeah, go ahead. Um, what do you think are the biggest barriers to things like open dialogue becoming more accepted in um, in places like the US? I mean, it sounds like the data behind them shows that they're working a lot better than the the drug therapy. So what's what's happening from your, your perspective? Well, I think there's kind of this unholy partnership between psychiatry and the pharmaceutical industry. And, you know, back in the 70s, um, you know, there got to be a lot of alternatives to talk therapy psychiatrists. You know, you had psychologists, you had social workers, you, um, you know, other, you know, family counselors, other therapists that were posing a lot of competition to the psychiatrists. And so then, you know, uh, make turning it into a you know a medical issue that requires drugs that um, only is especially then it's a, been eroded a little bit but only psychiatrists can prescribe these medications and their drugs and so um, so they really you know push this approach and there's so much money that's being made uh, by this approach is I think the big barrier and and I think the most important thing to change that is, is to educate the public about you know get them to understand what's what's going on which is really hard I mean um, I think there used to be more of a separation between news and advertising but now you know the drug industry is by far and away the, the biggest source of ad revenue, and um, so it's really pretty hard to break through. Hmm. Um, do you feel? Are there? Um, do you see attacks against things like Hearing Voices Network and open dialogue in mainstream medical publications and, and things like that saying it's reckless or it's dangerous or things like that do, do they just oh, does the media i guess what i want to know is are, are those things ignored or are they kind of attacked my sense is uh, is they're just ignored 
that they okay. haven't come through enough to be attacked. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, the, there is one group where I think this type of thing should be appealing to, right? Because it would be insurance pay, uh, payers. Because something like, um, I mean, uh, psychiatric hospitalizations aren't cheap. Um, I, I mean, have you seen, has there ever been any luck having meetings with insurance payers for funding things like uh, open dialogue and things like that? You know, you would, I, you would think that that would be an obvious thing. And you'd think the same would be true of the government. You know, because a huge amount of this is paid, you know, you know, especially the involuntary you know, stuff mm-hmm. is all paid by the government. And, um, but, no, I, I'm not sure how much people have really tried to get get to them. Um, they just seem to be happy to pay and get, you know, get the rates, you know, the insurance rates up to to pay for it. Um, but it's kind of a puzzle, really. I mean, there's this program in North Carolina, the Promise Resource Network, and this fabulous executive director, Shireen Carrico, has put together this whole program like what we're talking about with peer respites and um, other warm lines and things and and they've been so successful that they get a, a bunch of money from the, their local uh, city government to do it um, so but it just hasn't been it hasn't caught on and I think it's because you know psychiatrists are granted uh, the status of being authoritative on this. They're supposed to be, they're the experts. So, you know, and, and they, you know, they abuse that position in terms of, of the truth on all this stuff. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've come across this. I, I don't know if you ever get, I don't, I don't know if you're on Twitter or, you know, with your publications and things like that. Have you ever been attacked by patient groups or, you know, groups representing people with bipolar or schizophrenia saying that you're dangerous for, you know, talking about these types of things and that you ought to just leave these groups alone? You know, they've been stigmatized enough and the last thing they need you to do is to sow any more doubt about whether they need to be on the meds. I I mean, has that been something you've experienced? Some, not a lot, I wouldn't say. Where do you think that comes from? Because, because I, do th- I do think that, um, you know, I ask because it happens to me sometimes, you know, that we put out there these messages that there are alternatives to medications. I, I, I would just love to hear your thoughts on, on what you think happens, um, you know, why, why people, patients become so upset when these things get brought up. Well, I think, you know, some people, you know, find the diagnosis very comforting um, and, um, you know, and believe that the, the drugs help them. And I'm not going to say that they, they don't help them, that they think that they help them. And, and um, you know, I think they're true believers in that and they think that, that I'm being, you know, irresponsible. I don't, I think... 
that you know that group of people that it's sincere um, you know and then you have the you know the nan you know nanny um, and they they claim uh, that we're irresponsible about this stuff so um, yeah it happens I, I think like I said the most important thing is having trying to change the public understanding of what's going on. I'll make a segue now because I want I want to leave some time for us to talk about the Zyprexa papers. Give us an overview of this thrilling book. I've read it. I loved it. Um, tell the audience a little bit about what, what you go over in the book. So in late November of 2006, I get this call out of the blue from this expert witness in this massive litigation over Zyprexa causing diabetes and other metabolic problems that Eli Lilly, the manufacturer, had hidden from the doctors and everybody else. They had evidence of this and they they just suppress it. One of the one of the documents actually says one of one of their researchers says we have to come clean on this, and of course they didn't. So anyway, um, he he wanted me to subpoena him. He had access to what's called discovery in the litigation, which is where the other side has to put in all the information documentation, and it was subject to a secrecy order. And the secrecy order said. If he was subpoenaed in another case, he had to give Lily notice and a reasonable opportunity to object before um, he could turn him over. And he, so he wanted me to subpoena him. He'd already actually been working with a reporter at the New York Times. And I was interested in that. He had found actually an expert witness report that I posted on the internet. Um, about Zyprexa, and that's why he called me. And I figured that he would, you know, give notice and Lily would object, and then I would be arguing in front of the Elastic Court why my client, Bill Bigley, needed these documents, which, by the way, I didn't have a client at the time. And you can't just subpoena something, you have to have a case. So that was a whole other story about trying to, you know, getting him as a client. Anyway, so um, I subpoenaed them. They didn't object in time, got him out. The New York Times had a series of front page stories. Um, Lily was irritated, to say the least. They threatened me with criminal contempt and to try and get me disbarred, and I got you know, ended up in front of this legendary judge, Jack Weinstein, in, in Brooklyn, in the United States District Court for the uh, Southern Dis Eastern District of New York. Um, and it was really quite dramatic, I think. Um, the, the, um, like, for example, Vera Sharav, she had called me and asked me that she'd heard about it and wanted me to send her two copies, and she came in. And um, and they, you know, and they asked her, well, why, you know, why did you want two copies? And she would say, well, I, I want to give one to the attorney general because they're killing babies. And uh, 
every the answer to every question was they're killing babies and then um uh, like the lawyer, you know, said, would you have them with you? And she said, yes. Well, you were ordered to return them. And she said, no, I wasn't. I mean, I had been ordered to try and get them back. And she said, she, um, Gottstein just was, you know, ordered to try and get them back. Did he ask you? Yes. Why didn't you, why didn't you, uh, turn them in because they're killing babies, you know, with this drug. And so, I mean, that was a dramatic, uh, situation and how they got out on the internet um, and the judge ended up um, uh, deciding that I had conspired to steal these documents uh, and you know I thought that was pretty unfair frankly because I I feel like I followed the secrecy order to the letter and um, Anyway, and I was un still permanently enjoined from further dissemination of, of the Zyprexa papers. Um, and so that's, you know, a big chunk of the book. And the other, other half is my representation of Bill Bigley, whose life was just ruined by psychiatry. And he really resonated with me because he was just a couple months older than I, than I am or what was. And... Um, he got hauled into the system a couple of years before me, and but he didn't escape. And he was cooperative at first, and, and then once he started saying, oh, these drugs aren't for me, they started, you know, locking him up and drugging him. And by the time he died, he had been hospitalized a hundred times. And, um, but he was, he was quite a guy, really. Well, it's a fantastic book. I really enjoyed it. And uh, if you're wanting to learn more about this legendary court case and the $3 billion settlement and, and Jim's role in it, I'd recommend you go out there and grab a copy off Amazon. I'm pretty sure that's where I got it. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you want to see the full video interview, we also post these to YouTube. Just go to Wit During Psychiatry on YouTube to find those. You'll also find several YouTube exclusive videos from Drs. Yosef and Marissa posted several times a week. Finally, if you need help with your drug taper, getting a second opinion, or managing your post-acute withdrawal, come visit us at witduringpsychiatry.com. Our sole focus is on helping patients regain control of their lives and achieve optimal mental health on as little medications as possible.